Thank you, Nathaniel. Happy Easter. Hope you've been enjoying the sunshine. I managed to get into the sea three times this week. Twice with a wetsuit, once without. Just working up to the non-wetsuit experience. And it was good. It took me about two hours to warm again afterwards, but it was still good. Right, we are, well, over this Easter series, we have been looking at the story of the Exodus, of the time when God, through Moses, brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. It's the big story of the Bible. If you want to understand the story of the Bible, and if you want to understand the story of Easter, you really need to understand the story of the Exodus. This is what it says in Exodus 14 about that experience. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The story of Exodus is a story of rescue. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them through the sea and brought them into freedom. It's a rescue story, and uh, we love rescue stories. I think of all the stories that we tell, the movies we watch, the novels we read, the stories we tell in our families, there are two stories which are kind of the dominant stories in the human experience. The first story is the love story. The love story goes like this. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. They face a challenge. They overcome the challenge, and then they get married. The second big story is the rescue story, which is like the love story, but a little bit different. The rescue story goes like this. Boy meets girl, falls in love. A monster kidnaps the girl. The boy kills the monster. They get married, and they live happily ever after. That's the story. That's the story we tell all over the place. It's a story of Sleeping Beauty. It's the story of Bournemouth Football Club in 2009. It's the story of Jack Reacher when you read one of his novels on the beach in the summer. It's a rescue story. It's about the guy killing the monster and getting the girl. And we love rescue stories. Last summer, there was an amazing rescue story, a real one, the story of the Tam Luim cave rescue in Thailand where 12 teenage soccer uh, players were lost in a cave under the ground with their coach. And uh, over a process of 18 days, they were miraculously rescued, brought out by an extraordinary adventure of daring and uh, bravery. One which stands in my memory even more dramatic was the Copiapo mining accident in Chile uh, nine years ago in 2010. Do you remember this one? On that occasion, there were 33 miners who were trapped more than 2,000 feet underground, and they were underground for 69 days in uh, the darkness, and the thought was that they would die, that there was going to be no rescue for them, but there, again, was an incredible rescue effort, incredible engineering feat, boring a rescue tunnel down the little tiny lift which uh, they were brought back up on, and all, 60, all 33 of those miners, after 69 days, were brought to rescue, and there were uh, estimated to be a global TV audience of a billion people who were watching it at the time. And as those miners came out, one after the other, they fell on the floor saying, praise God, hallelujah. They all, uh, those of them who didn't believe in God, all believed in God by the time they came out because they had been rescued. It was a miracle. And that's the story of the Bible. And it's 
this kind of story. Uh, each week as we've been going through this series, we've had a little flip film clip to help set the scene. And here's a film clip from The Return of the King to help set the scene of what I'm talking about today. always gets very excited when she sees Aragorn doing his thing. <laughs> but what we need is a hero. We need a king, a king to come and to rescue. And the story of Easter is the story of a king who was once obscure, hidden, like Aragorn. And death reigned unchallenged, but the king has returned, and even death is subject to him. Now, this is the enduring story. It's a story of our humanity that we're looking for a hero to rescue us. The Bible is this story. It's a story of rescue and it's a story about marriage. And I think it's an utterly compelling story. It's a story that we were lost once in the dark, like those miners in Copiapo, and we've been brought into the light. And we human beings, we love a triumph against the odds, a happy ever after, plucked from the jaws of death rescue because that's what we were made for. And we live in an entertainment culture which often disappoints us. Often we can actually be victims of our own junkie-like entertainment addiction. We endlessly watch the news waiting for good news which never comes or we endlessly watch box sets on Netflix and get through one and have to start another the more we consume, the more we need, and the less satisfied we are. And it feels like in our kind of public life, we don't really have heroes anymore. We have just celebrities. Today in the Ukraine, there's this bizarre election going on where it looks like the guy who's going to be elected as president of the Ukraine isn't even a politician. He's a celebrity. He's a star of a, of a comedy show about politicians, and somehow he's going to be elected as president. And that kind of sums up how so much of life feels now. We don't have 
heroes, we have celebrities, we don't seem to have depth of character, it's all about image and personality. And so when we see a real rescue, like those boys brought out of those caves in Thailand, or like those miners brought out of the dark in Chile, it's compelling because it's so much more than just entertainment, it's a picture of what we need. And this is the story of the Bible, it's a story we need to know, it's a story of love, it's a story of rescue. And so I want to recount the story, the Genesis to Revelation story for you this morning to help you see the power of the story again. The story begins with a chaotic and empty universe in which there is no color and no life. And into this chaos, into this grayness, God speaks a creative word, a rainbow word of order and beauty. And God brings human beings into this world. They're created to be like God in this world he makes, created to work and themselves create to pursue life and more order and beauty. But almost immediately the chaos begins to break out again. There's a monster, Satan, who appears and he grips mankind by the heel. That's the imagery the Bible uses, that Satan is like a serpent, who, like a snake who gets you by the ankle and In that moment of disaster, God speaks and he promises Eve, the first woman, he says to Eve that out of her a rescuer will come, a hero will come who will smash the monster's head and bring freedom to the human race again. But before that happens, creation starts to unravel. We see that in the beginning of the story that there's marital tension. Adam and Eve, made for perfect relationships, start to squabble into fight. And then pretty soon there's murder as one of their sons kills another of their sons. And just... The mess of the human experience takes center stage. And then God looks upon the mess on the earth and God brings judgment. He sends a flood and destroys all life except that kept on the ark with Noah. And Noah and his family mark a fresh start. It's a chance to begin again. And as the story is told, we can almost smell the flowers bursting out of the mud as God again speaks blessing to Noah and upon the earth. God speaks another rainbow word. He paints a rainbow in the sky and he promises blessing for all the earth. But the monster still isn't defeated. The snake still has us by the heel. And the story very quickly again becomes one of not so much about blessing but about human sin and mess and misery. And this chapter of the story ends at the Tower of Babel, where God scatters human beings across the earth. And as we read the story, we're left asking the question, what is the plan for the human race? And in the Bible, this brings us up to the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. We're in the region of Mesopotamia, and we're at the beginning of the rest of history of God's plan for the human race. And the story focuses down onto one man, the man Abraham. And this man Abraham contains within within himself the promise of rescue for all men. And Abraham's story begins when his father, Terah, decides to leave the place where they live. They live in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, in what we'd now think of as kind of Turkey, Iraq type area. And they leave to go west to the land of Canaan. And as they go, there's nothing obviously spiritual, nothing particularly cosmic in terms of what's happening. It simply looks like Terah is moving west in search of a better life for him and his family. It looks very domestic, but actually God is working out a plan that will bless all the nations 
of the earth. But you look at Terah's family and you think, how on earth can blessing come from this? This is how his family is. Terah, Abraham's father, has three sons, and these sons and their sons all intermarry. This is how it goes. Abraham marries his half-sister Sarai. Abraham's brother, Terah's second son, Nahor, marries his niece, his brother, Haran's daughter. Abraham's son, Isaac, marries his cousin, Nahor's daughter, Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob, marries Rebekah's nieces, his cousins, Leah and Rachel. It's a bit confusing, but it's completely chaotic. It sounds disastrous. It doesn't look like this family will bring rescue to the earth. It looks like the family will become extinct as they all intermarry and interbreed. But it's by this little tribe that God is going to work out his story of rescue for all the peoples of the earth. And at this point in the story, God upscales Abraham's name. Abraham means exalted father. And God says to him, you'll no longer be called Abraham, you're now going to be called Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Why? Because it's going to be Abraham's children who will make the God of rescue known to all the peoples of the earth. In Abraham's story as well, in his family, I think there's a note of comfort for those of you who come from chaotic families. If your family situation is a bit crazy and a bit chaotic, look at the story of Abraham, what his family was like, how crazy and chaotic that looked, but all the good things that God brought out of it in the end. Now, Abraham's family are blessed, but they're also troubled, and a family feud develops. A feud develops amongst Abraham's great-grandchildren and Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson is sold as a slave by his brothers, sold as a slave into Egypt. But even in this story, God is working for good because you know the story, you've seen the movie, you've sung the musical. Joseph becomes president of Egypt. And then the story twists again because after Joseph, the coming pharaohs forget about Joseph in his story. And rather than honoring Joseph's family... The people of Israel are themselves made slaves in Egypt. And we get to the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus opens with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And once again, they need a rescuing hero. And this time, God sends Moses. And this time, the rescue is dramatic, and it involves locusts and blood and ice and flood and frogs and flies. And God shows himself faithful the faithful saviour of his people. He leads them on the Exodus. He leads them in that scripture I read at the beginning. He leads them through the sea, the great miracle of rescue and deliverance. But even as God rescues his people, his people do not remain faithful to him. Exodus 14 tells us the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is a song of praise to God for the rescue. And then we get to Exodus chapter 16, and it says the whole community grumbled. Almost as soon as God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, they begin to grumble. And that's the story of the people of God. Once they enter the promised land, there's a cycle of them rebelling against God and then being oppressed by their enemies, by the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and again and again in their misery they call out to God and say God would you remember us would you help us and again and again God sends a rescuer he sends a hero he sends the likes of Deborah and Gideon and 
David and Hezekiah to rescue them from their enemies. And every time they're rescued, they pretty soon fall back into grumbling against God and rebellion against him. And this chapter of the story ends as the people are carried into exile in Babylon. And we get to the end of the Old Testament. We get to the book of Malachi. And the story seems to be balanced on a knife edge. There's been so much rebellion by God's people against God and they've experienced so much disaster but there are people who know they're not meant to be slaves they're meant to be free and so the big question that's left hanging over the story and for 400 years there's silence how is rescue going to happen for these people and then after 400 years of silence the answer is announced through angels and a star in the sky as shepherds and kings are drawn to the obscurity of a small town in Palestine drawn to a stable and a crib drawn to Jesus and everything we're told about Jesus is just as we should have expected if we had been paying attention to the story but actually it is mystifying to everybody who's observing it the whole thing from the birth of Jesus in a stable to his death on a cross just doesn't seem to follow the plot lines that people had anticipated. All the other heroes God had sent to brought rescue, Noah and Abraham and Moses and Deborah and Gideon and David and Hezekiah, they'd all brought rescue, but the rescue was always incomplete because the monster was still alive. The monster was still gripping their heel until the true hero, the true king, was revealed. And the point at which our hero was revealed, the point at which the monster's head was crushed, was at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross that the power of sin and death are smashed. It's at the cross where Jesus grabs death by the throat and says, you will be subject to me because I am the king. God himself comes to the rescue. This is what it says in the Gospel of Matthew about that first Easter Sunday. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples suddenly Jesus met them greetings he said they came to him clasped his feet and worshipped him this is the story that there is one who has overcome death there is one who died but lives again and our faith as Christians, our hope depends upon this, that Jesus Christ is alive. Christ 
was dead. Christ was buried. But the grave could not hold him. And he lives again. It's often claimed that the greatest challenge to Christianity is science. That all the expanding revelations of science present some kind of great challenge to Christian belief. Really, that's not the case at all. Science lets us understand more and more of the worlds, lets us understand more and more of the worlds and the universe that God has made. And science itself isn't fixed. Science keeps advancing, keeps developing, keeps shifting as we discover new things. Old theories are laid aside as new theories are formulated, as more evidence comes to light. Science isn't a threat to Christianity. Science merely reveals all that God has made. Actually, the greatest threat to Christianity is not science, it's history. It's this question. Did the resurrection really take place? That's the biggest question. That's the greatest threat. If the resurrection didn't take place, then our faith as Christians is empty and worthless. And this isn't on a sliding scale. It's not a question of gray. It's not a maybe or perhaps question. It's a yes or a no question. Did Jesus die and was he raised to new life? And if you consider the evidence if you want to consider the evidence in more detail, you can do that by doing something like going on our belief course. You consider the evidence, the evidence of the tomb that was closed with a heavy stone and a tomb that was then empty and a body that had disappeared and a body not of a man who was still alive but a man who'd been crucified, who was dead, who'd had a spear thrust into his side and whose heart was ruptured and disciples who were terrified and didn't have the means or the strength to get past a bunch of Roman guards and open a heavily fortified tomb and get a dead body out and then pretend that body was alive. When you consider all the evidence, actually the impossible answer is the most possible answer. The implausible becomes the most plausible that yes, Jesus is alive. Christ was dead. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. You know, the hero was always destined to snatch life from the jaws of death by the power of his own death-defying death. In the death of Christ Jesus, the curse that came upon Adam was overturned and the promise made to Eve has come true that the monster's head has been crushed, his heel grip has been broken. Jesus has defeated death in himself and will defeat death in us. Now at the moment it looks like death is still winning because everyone dies, whether it's in a bomb and a terrorist attack on a church or just peacefully in your sleep after the end of a long life. But death is subject. The king has taken it by the throat. The king has returned and death must yield. 
And now in Christ Jesus, the promise that God made to Abraham that every nation on earth would be blessed is becoming true. As a striking illustration of this, in the 8th chapter of Acts, we looked at this last year when we were teaching through the book of Acts as a story of an African man, an Ethiopian, an official in the court of the uh, royal family, and a man who's a eunuch. This is a man who's outside the people of God by birth. He's not a physical descendant of Abraham. He's an African, not a Jew. And also he's a eunuch, which makes his kind of status somewhat marginal and different. But somehow he's become a follower of the true God, and he's gone on pilgrimage to worship God in Jerusalem. And then on his way home, he's in his chariot, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads in Isaiah 53 where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And he was confused by this story. Who is the prophet speaking about? Who's the story about? Who is this suffering man? And God sends another man. God sends a man called Philip who runs alongside the chariot and says to the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, no, I don't, and invites him into his chariot to explain this. And it says in the story that Philip began with that scripture, explaining what Jesus had accomplished. Began in Isaiah 53, said this is Jesus. Jesus was the one who was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was the one who was a man of sorrows. Jesus was the one who was acquainted with grief. This is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about. And having explained about Jesus in Isaiah 53, I'm sure that, the, that Philip went on to talk uh, all the way through to Isaiah 56, where it says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Philip explains it to the Ethiopian. In Christ Jesus, the promises given to Abraham have come true even to him. You can imagine Philip in the chariot telling the story and saying, this story is for you. This story about the account of the human race, of how we came to be and why we're in the mess we are and the hero that we need and the hero that we have in Christ Jesus and how this is even for you, you who are a foreigner and you who are a eunuch. See, the prophet has spoken about you. God has spoken about you. God has said that the foreigner who joins himself to his people will be fruitful in the house of the Lord. The eunuch, the one who's unable physically to have children, will have an inheritance better than many sons and daughters. There's no bar now of ethnicity or sex or social status for those who turn in faith to Christ. And just like those miners brought out of the ground in Chile, the story of the Ethiopian becomes one of miraculous rescue. He turns in faith to Jesus. 
he believes. He stops a chariot by a pool of water. He says, I want to be baptized. I want to have this sign of new life in Christ. He goes into the water. He comes up a transformed man. He goes back to Ethiopia and speaks about Jesus there. Now, this is our story too. It's a, it's a rescue story, and it's a love story. And the Bible tells us that there's a wedding at the end of this story. There always has to be a wedding at the end. That's the story. Boy meets girl, falls in love. Monster kidnaps girl. Boy kills the monster. Get married and live happily ever after. This is what it says in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Sometimes... That line there can trouble us. We are fortunate in Paul to live next to the sea, and we love the sea. I've been in the sea three times this week. And we can see, what does it mean the sea was no more? Let me just explain that. I think what that means is about separation. The sea separates. Two weeks ago, Grace and I were in uh, America, where we were with uh, One Harbor Church in North Carolina. We could jump in the sea at, down at Branksome Chine and start swimming and try and head for Moorhead City on the coast of North Carolina. Never going to make it. The sea is an impassable barrier. It speaks of separation. You need somebody else to get you there. You need, in our case, a plane to carry you there. In myself, I'd be powerless to get to North Carolina. I need someone else who can carry me there. The sea speaks of separation. I think that's why it says the sea was no more. I'm sure there'll still be ocean in some way in the new heavens. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. This is the story you want to know. This is the greatest story you can know. This is a true story. This isn't just a fairy story about boy meets girl, falls in love, kills a monster. This is the true story of the true rescuer, the true hero, the true king. It's a story that can give shape to our lives because it's a story that fills us with hope. My invitation to you this morning would be to enter again into this story. This Easter Sunday, step into the story of God's rescue of men and women like us. If you've never stepped into that story, do so today. Look to Jesus. He's the one who's got death by the throat and has the victory. We need to know the story. We need to live the story. We can have hope in Christ Jesus. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you that you are the true King. Thank you all the other stories of rescue, whatever they are, they're just shadows of reality. And Lord, some of those stories are powerful. As Aragorn grabs death by the throat, there's power in that imagery. 
other stories that we read or watch, there's power. When we see a real life rescue, it moves us because it resonates with something we know and need we have inside us. We know that the human race needs to be lifted out of darkness and brought into light. But we feel the power of those stories. But then we look to you. We look at the empty cross and the stone rolled away from the grave and the empty grave. We think about those women who are so confused and perplexed and then saw you and took hold of your feet and worshipped you. And Lord, we want to do that this morning as well. We want to lay hold of you and worship you as the one who is the hero, who, the one who is the king, the one who has crushed the monster's head, the one who has got death by the throat and will destroy it forever, that you're putting death under your feet. All must be under your feet because you will reign as king forever. Thank you, you're the one who's coming again, that you will bring heaven to earth and we will dwell with you. Thank you that we, for the hope we have this day because of the Easter story. Thank you it's not just a story, but it's truth. Thank you that history attests to it. The grave is empty. Christ is risen. And we will be raised to life in you as well. We praise you for these things, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship him together.